As, as you listen, um, you don't really have to remember anything. No quiz at the end, no grades. Um, this is more than anything a reminder of something you already know. And if it rings true to you, wonderful. And if it doesn't, just let it go. So I thought about coming back this evening and, and speaking. Um, and often when I've been away and come back, I want to return to some of the basics and the classics. Um, and especially since this last year has also been a process of some healing for myself, some weird neurological stuff that had been gone on that is fortunately much better than it was. So I'd like to talk about healing tonight, but healing is a dimension of liberation. And we just finished last week the end of the two-month winter-spring retreat that we have, a silent retreat here for almost 100 people. And it gets just beautiful there. People get so still um, and so open. Anyway, a couple years ago in that retreat, as I was teaching it, there was a young woman who sat in the meditation hall, and a few seats over from her near the front was this old guy who, who was an old Marine, and he, you know, he sat in a kind of, mostly sat in his T-shirt with a big Marine tattoos on, and kind of, you know, big old, rough-looking guy, basically. And he scared her. She'd just look at him, and he was like the kind of person that scared her. Um, and so she had to work with that in her practice and her meditation and so forth. But nevertheless, he did scare her, you know, and maybe reminded her of things that had caused her trauma and whatever it was, he represented that. And then one day on the last week of the retreat, which was like, like today, one of those kind of rainbow days where it rains and the sun comes out and it's so, so much spring, um, she came and she said, it's better now. I said, oh? She said, yeah, I was down by the little stream near the dining hall and I saw the guy that I'd been so afraid of. And he was down there where the flowers are, cupping each flower and sniffing it like that, you know, and holding the flower in his hands. And she said, I realized he just wasn't who I thought he was at all, <laughs> you know. So we have all these ideas about the world and about one another. And what does it mean um, to bring a kind of healing from the disconnect to one another, you know, the continuous war and racism and environmental destruction that happens around the world is the separation of people in crazy ways, um, or healing to ourselves. Now, the, the most important meditation instructions in this insight meditation tradition, the, the path of mindfulness, the Buddha says, there is a most wonderful way for living beings to realize purification, to overcome directly grief and sorrow, to end pain and anxiety, to travel the path of compassion and understanding and realize liberation. And this is the establishment of mindfulness. There are four establishments of mindfulness, my friends. The practitioner remains established in mindfulness of the body in the body, very interesting phrase, established of mindfulness of the feelings in the feelings, established in mindfulness of the mind in the mind, and establishment, established in the mindfulness of the Dharma, the laws that govern life in the Dharma, with attention clear, mindful, free, understanding. And from this, it goes on, this is an invitation to freedom, to the deathless. So this is healing, the ending of sorrow and grief, uh, the coming of liberation through attention and mindfulness. What's sometimes called the, the sure heart's release, another language for liberation, in ourselves and in our connection to the world at large. 
So how does this happen or grow out of mindfulness? It comes from the capacity for deep listening. Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh also calls it deep seeing. But a deep listening, not the listening with the ears, but a listening with the heart or the soul or one's being in a way that we don't usually do. And this comes, and here you come to a meditation center, this comes in part um, by not doing anything. We're such a busy doing culture. This from William Stafford, the poet. He writes, This is the field where the battle did not happen, where the unknown soldier does not lie. This is the field where grass joined hands, where no monument stands, the only heroic thing is the sky. Birds fly here without any sound, unfolding their wings across the open. No people killed on this ground, hallowed by neglect and an air so tame that people celebrate it by forgetting its name. Kind of an amazing poem. It's not the poem to what we did or didn't do, but to the, the grace of the earth and the presence of not, not soiling it for ourselves in some way. Not selling anything, not expecting anything. Mindfulness becomes the quality with which we can actually bring a full presence to the world and say, oh, this is how experience is with its sorrows and its joys and its praise and its blame. It's a, it is a space of attention that liberates us from reacting to and being caught. Bless you. In all the things that we do get caught by. So I have a story for you because stories are also the way that we learn. As the poet Muriel Ruckheiser says, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. On the bulletin board, and this is particularly meaningful because I went to see Yeshe Dundon, who is the physician to the Dalai Lama this last fall, being sick and, and um, had a you know, wonderful encounter with him and all these pulse-taking and Tibetan, weird Tibetan medicine that looks like little deer pellets that you eat, basically. <laughs> anyway, this is written by um, Richard Selzer, who's a surgeon at Yale. On the bulletin board in the front hall of the hospital where I work, there appeared the announcement, Yeshe Dundon will make rounds at 6 o'clock on the morning of June 10th. The particulars were given, followed by the note, Yeshe Dundon is personal physician to the Dalai Lama. I'm not so leathery a skeptic that I would knowingly ignore an emissary from the gods. So on the next morning, June 10th, I joined the clutch of white coats in the small conference room the air in the room is heavy with ill-concealed dubiety and suspicions of bamboozlement. <laughs> you know, surgeons, whatever. At precisely six o'clock, he materializes, a short, short, golden, barrelly man dressed in a sleeveless robe of saffron, his scalp shaven, only visible hair is the black line above each hooded eye. He bows in greeting while his young interpreter makes the introduction. Yeshe Dundon will, will examine a patient selected by a member of the staff. The diagnosis is unknown to him as it is to us. It will take place in our presence, and afterward we will meet and discuss his diagnosis. We're further informed that for the past few hours, Yeshe Dundon has purified himself by bathing, fasting, and prayer. I, who just gobbled down my breakfast and performed only the most desultory of ablutions, have given no thought at all to my soul, glance, and suddenly my fellow physicians seem a rather soiled and uncouth lot. <laughs> the patient was awakened early and told that she was to be examined by a foreign doctor and had been asked to produce a fresh specimen of urine, so when we entered her room she showed no surprise. She had long ago taken on that mixture of compliance and resignation that is the face of chronic illness. This was another in an endless series of examinations. Yeshe Dundon steps to the bedside, 
while the woman stands apart, while the rest of us stand apart, watching. For a long time he gazes at the woman, favoring no part of her body with his eyes, but seeming to fix his glance at a place just above her form. I study her too. There's no physical sign or symptom that gives a clue to her disease. At last he takes her hand, raising it in both of his own, and now he bends over the bed in a kind of crouching stance, head drawn down into the collar of his robe. His eyes are closed as he feels for her pulse, and in a moment he's found the spot, and for the next half hour he remains thus suspended above the patient like some exotic golden bird with folded wings, holding the pulse of the woman beneath his figures, fingers, cradling her hand. All the power of this man seems to be drawn down to the palpation of pulse. And where I stand, it is as though he and the patient have entered a special place of apartness about which no violation is possible. After a moment, the woman rests back on her pillow. From time to time, she raises her head to look at the strange figure above her and then sinks back. I cannot see their hands joined in a correspondence that is intimate, exclusive, his fingertips receiving the voice of her body through the rhythms of her wrist. But all at once I am envious, not of him, not of Jeshe Dundon for his gift of beauty and holiness, but of her. I want to be held like that, so touched, so received. And I know that I, who have palpated a hundred thousand pulses, have not felt a single one. At last, he straightens, places the woman's hand gently on the bed, and steps back. The interpreter produces a small wooden bowl and two sticks, and he pours a portion of the urine specimen in the bowl and whips the liquid for several minutes until a foam is raised. Then bowing to the bowl, he inhales the odor three times, sets the bowl down and turns to leave, all this without uttering a single word. As he nears the door, the woman raises her head and calls out in a voice urgent and serene, Thank you, doctor, thank you. And touches with her other hand the place he held on her wrist as though to recapture something important that had visited her there. As she Dundon turns back for a moment to gaze at her and steps into the corridor, rounds are at an end. We're seated in the conference room and he begins to speak in soft Tibetan sounds translated through the young interpreter, a bilingual fugue like the chanting of monks. He speaks of winds coursing through the body of the woman, currents that break against barriers, eddying. These vortices are in his blood, he says, the last spendings of an imperfect heart. Between the chambers of the heart, long before she was born, a wind had come and blown open a deep gate that must never be opened. Through it charge the full waters of her river as the mountain stream cascades in springtime, battering, knocking loose the land and flooding her breath. He, said, he speaks thus and is silent. May we now have the diagnosis, the professor asks. And the host of these rounds, the only man who knows, answers. Congenital heart disease, interventricular septal defect with resultant heart failure. A gateway in the heart, I think, that must not be opened. Through it charged the full waters that flood her breath. So, here then is the doctor listening to the sounds of the body to which of the, the rest of us would only aspire. He is more than doctor. He is priest. I know the doctor of the gods is pure. The doctor to the gods is pure knowledge and healing and the doctor to humans must stumble, his patients must die, as must he. But now and then it happens as I make my own rounds that I hear the sound of his voice like an ancient Buddhist prayer, its meaning long since forgotten, only the music remaining. And then a jubilation possesses me, and I feel myself as if touched by something holy. So I'd never met 
Yeshe Dundon before, and I got to see him over in Oakland where he was, now he's in his 80s and feeling, you know, the probably the 500,000 pulse, the pulse that he'd felt and did this whole examination. And he was, after reading that story, I had a lot of expectation, of course. Um, and he was very cool, you know. And, he, and, 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 and I listened to this story, and I remember now being in his presence and feel how for us as human beings there is this longing to be so held so received, so listened to, so respected. Hawaii's getting warm in there, isn't it, by the way? Is it too warm? Or is it okay? Too? Hmm? It's okay? You can stand it. All right. We'll stay with it for a little bit. Grania, if you want, you can turn the temperature down a little bit, see what happens. But we, we have this longing to be respected and listened to and held. And the, the world itself, our families, our gardens, you know, the aboriginals and the Indians and Pakistanis and the Jews and the Muslims and the Christians and the prisoners and the guards and your co-workers and children and parents, the laborers and the managers. I mean, who around you doesn't want to be listened to? And who who in particular around you so much deeply wants to be listened. And here in this simple story of Yeshe Dundon taking a pulse, this is the power of the listening heart. Even in the face of the truths of suffering and potential death and illness and impermanence, of the sorrows of the world, the quality of listening is what allows us to find healing, to find our right relationship, our way through. I remember being with a very, very close person to me who was dying of cancer, and we were doing a guided meditation together, and the chemotherapy for her was like some combination of fire and hell in her body. It was so intense. And we did it visualized being in this great healing temple and going through a, a kind of purifi- purification fire. And she went through this in her meditation for a time. And somehow going through it, her body transformed for these moments anyway. And this huge, green, lovely light of spirit came out of the fire, almost as if you'd thrown copper into the fire. And, you know, it had turned this brilliant green. And she realized that sometimes you have to go through the fire in order to find healing. There is, when we listen, as Yeshe Dundon did, a trust in the capacity of the heart to face the reality that is in front of us. The sorrows and the potential dying of this woman in that hospital room and the beauty, the almost unbearable beauty of life and its great sorrows. And listening, the listening heart has the capacity to say, ah, this is the way that it is. The world is, is like this. And when we begin to be mindful in this way, we rest not in the contents of experience, although we listen well, but there comes a way that we listen from the space of awareness itself, which is this quality of presence, attention. I sometimes translate mindfulness as a kind of sacred attention because it has such respect or care in it. And there's an alchemy that happens when we listen in that way. Especially in this time of managed care, more emphasis seems to be placed upon the quick amelioration of symptoms in short-term work and privatized profit-making clinics than upon the lovely and mysterious alchemy that comprises the healing cords between and within people, the cords that soothe our terrors and help us be whole. And so there's all the medical things that we know to do, but there's something else much deeper. I mean, I remember Voltaire, I think, was the one who said um, that most of medicine consists of the doctor amusing the patient while nature heals or something like that, right? (laughs) 
Because in truth, medicine, even the great stuff in modern medicine, very rarely is actually the healing. It, it cleans things. It provides the opportunity for the body and life force to heal itself. So how does this connect with mindfulness, the foundations of mindfulness, as the gateway to liberation and healing? First, the body in the body, that phrase. And there are different extremes as we pay attention to this weird thing called human incarnation that I like to talk about, you know. This thing with wiggly limbs on the ends with tiny little wiggles at the end of the feet and the hands and the hole at one end into which you regularly stuff dead plants and animals, you know, and glug them down through the tube and the way we ambulate by falling one direction, catching ourselves in the na- falling the other way, catching ourselves. And it's bizarre, you know, and then you're in there. Here you are. Okay, you're stuck. You're human. Okay. So one extreme is to fear about the body. Oh, my God, and grasp it and try and, you know... Um, Botox it and exercise it. No, those are, they're, all, they're fine, but it's some way in which you get really overly attached to it. That's one extreme. And the other side is to ignore it. You know, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body, that phrase from James Joyce, and, you know, not actually live. Mindfulness, the Buddha's invitation for wisdom and healing and freedom is to come into a mindful relationship of the body in the body. To, be, to, to rest in the breath, as we did tonight, and the awareness of what is so within this very body. And of course, as you sit down to meditate and you think, okay, I'm now going to get nice and peaceful and quiet, with the body, one of the first things that happens is all the stuff that you've carried because you've been running around busy and whenever there was conflict or difficulty, your jaw gets tighter, your back gets tighter. All the places you hold the tension, you get nice and peaceful and then your body says, hey, remember me. And you feel your jaw and you feel your shoulders and the tension and pains and troubles that you carry and reveal themselves. The body presents its bill basically, if you haven't paid attention to it, if you haven't paid the bill, it presents it. It does. You know? And Alice Miller says, it's incorruptible as a child. It, it will not be left alone long before it shows you what attention it needs. So you sit in meditation, and sometimes it's painful, and sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes tingling and hot and cold and release, and all of these different things that come, and sometimes the deeper wounds of the body. And the big question is, how do you touch this body? Always trying to fix it, lower the shoulder and change this and do that, you know, or trying to get away from it because I don't like the way it looks, you know, that one, you know, or scared by it because it's getting older or it hurts or who knows what could happen ignoring it. How do you touch it? And how do you touch the difficulty in the body? To touch it with mindfulness is the benevolent attention. It's really the space of love. And it's also fearless. It says, yes, this is the human life we've been given. Let me pay deep attention. And the pain comes, and instead of, we're a culture that's frightened of pain, you know. Kind of, we're the comfort culture, if there ever was one. Turn up the heat, turn down the heat a little bit, you know, I mean, make sure it's more comfortable, you know, anything. Don't get a bit uncomfortable, right, you know? Does it work? I mean, come on, face it. But, but here, it's like when things are difficult, you hold the child who is ill. You know, sometimes the child's crying, and you've given this baby medicine, and they're still crying, it's, they're still sick. Mm. you hold that which is difficult in the body like, like, a, like a child. And all of a sudden, the place that was tight or, or hurts or wounded or all the things that are there, it starts to open and say, yes, energy comes back, life comes back. I remember for one of my books, interviewing all these meditation teachers and, and priests and various people, and um, here we are. This one Catholic father 
said, I came from a poor white family where we drank and lived hard. The men treated the body like a truck that you used and ignored. I joined the church and it was worse. I hated to deal with my body, you know. I lived on coffee and then on scotch. Gradually, as I looked at the simple people who came to talk to me and saw how many tortured bodies there were, as well as tortured souls, my faith and love got past all the nonsense about sin in the body in church. It doesn't have to be so hard. When Christ taught to love the enemy, I took a vow of nonviolence, and this included my body. My practice became, do not torment myself. Do not escalate the pain. Let me touch the body with the same reverence I would touch that which is holy. So with mindfulness, we begin to pay attention. Mindfulness and compassion are really woven together, or loving-kindness and begin to notice what it's like to stay in the presence of this body and to listen to it. And as we listen deeply, the way Yeshe Dandan listened, first there's a healing that comes just in the attention. You know this, just being held. Then there's a healing because understanding comes. Should we be eating this? Should we not? We pay attention to what goes in the body. or Should we be acting this way or not? The body teaches us. And maybe even more deeply, it teaches us the reality of its vulnerability, its aging, its inevitable sickness, that you don't own it. I mean, if you look in the mirror, as I like to say, you notice that the body is aged, right? Come on, right? (laughs) Less hair here, wrinkles there, whatever. But the weird thing is that you don't feel older. And that's because it's only the body that's aged. And from the perspective of looking in the mirror is a quite wild thing for a human being to do because there's a place of knowing, the the space of awareness or consciousness that sees that's not the body. It says, oh, look, it's gotten older, it's droopier, it's doing this or that, you know. That's not who we are. We rent it, we use it, we have it, we can treasure it. But you're not the... How did you get in there? I mean, come on. You know, and so mindfulness allows both the healing attention and also the wisdom to see not the fear, the body of fear, the attachment, but the wisdom of the body that it's a vehicle, vulnerability, and its preciousness. I mean, reflect for a moment. How have you listened to your body? How have you touched it? What kind of attention would it want? And what is, the, what is the deep truth that your body is teaching you? When you listen in this way, you also discover that it's not your body. It's the earth's body. It's made of calcium and the various minerals that make up your bones and the seawater that's your blood. It is. Blood is basically salt water of a certain kind. And, you know, your, your rainwater and, you know, not to speak of asparagus and French brie and all those things that you... I mean, it's, that's what your body... You are of the earth, and because you're of the earth, it's not just the body but something bigger that you extend to. You're the earth come alive. What is man, says Chief Seattle, what is man without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, men would die from great loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. And this was, you know, 150 years ago, but you could weep when you hear these words because you know it's true, you know. I don't have to talk about the rhinoceros and the Siberian tiger and, you know, three species of whale and species of cranes and all the... You know, just recite the endangered species list. We should put them on the milk cartons like lost children. And I have this... My daughter, when she was in elementary school, wrote this out in her handwriting for me. She said, Dad, I think you can use this. And so I have it in my daughter's, you know... 
third grade handwriting. It's so sweet. But it turns out that as we listen deeply, the body also connects us back to the earth. And we start to sense in this profound way that we are not separate, but that to take care of our body means to take care of the streams and the rivers and the earth. If I had the influence with the good fairies who are supposed to preside over the birth of all children, wrote Rachel Carlson, I should ask one thing, that her gift to each child in this world would be a sense of wonder, so indestructible it would last throughout their life. And especially wonder for this world we're in, the, the breath of the mist that comes over the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, and the thousands of years that have carved the coast that we see around the bay here and the spring moon. So there's a healing, and you know it, that comes into attention to the body in a wise way, this mysterious body and the body of the earth. And a listening that we need individually and collectively. Second foundation of mindfulness is feelings in the feelings. It's hard to tell what's the most important. You know, this is a really important one too because all this insanity happens in the world. People don't know what to do with their emotions. You know, nuclear giants and emotional infants. The most difficult part about the sorcerer's world, the sorcerer's way, writes... uh, Don Juan Castaneda is, is the realization that the world is a feeling. Well, there's a mysterious statement, right? Work on that for a bit. But what is healing and liberation with feelings? Just as there's liberation with the body to know that it's the body's body, we can tend it, but we can't own it. That's not who we are. With feelings in the feelings. Justice William O. Douglas of the Supreme Court We who work at the Supreme Court level, where I do, understand that 90% of our decisions are made on an emotional basis. The other 10% supplies the rationality for those decisions. You know that's true. I mean, we don't have to argue the point. You know, and I have this list. I started a copy from some psychological text of 500 feelings. Affectionate, ambitious, aggressive ambivalent, angry, amused, amorous, antagonistic, antsy, apathetic, apoplectic, appreciative, argumentative, blissful, brokenhearted, bored, bonkers, bad, calm, cheerful, claustrophobic, concentrated, contracted, curious, concerned, compassionate, defiant, delighted, depressed, disheartened, disillusioned, desirous, driven, dull. I mean, wow. C.S. Lewis writes, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. Look inside if you want to see the real zoo. Right? <laughs> so what is mindfulness? The first step is simply to know feelings. Just as you know your body, this is pain, this is tension, this is joy and ease when it opens. You need to have the joyful body as well as the painful one, Eduardo Galeano, who writes, science says the body's a machine. The church says the body is a sin. The marketplace says the body's good business. The body says, I am a fiesta. So the body has its own life and needs to be known for what it is. It's not who you are, but it's a part of this dance of life that you can hold with wisdom. Emotions are the same. And often Buddhism emphasizes emotions as problems, afflictive emotions, greed, hatred, hatred, jealousy, fear, you know, the fondled hatreds, the nursery of fears that C.S. Lewis speaks about. I don't think that's really that helpful. William Blake, joy and woe are woven fine, 
a clothing for the soul divine, and under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. It is right it should be so, for man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. And these are his poems of innocence and experience from his mystical visions that joy and sorrow are woven together. You can't have one without the other. You can't have birth without death or pleasure and not pain or hot without cold. It's cold now, right? (laughs) Grani, you could turn it up just a degree or two, right? Let's try that. You can't have... You can't have um, sweet, you know, without sour. You can't have light without dark. It doesn't work. The fabric of duality which makes the universe from the big flash at the beginning that you are, stardust that's congealed on this planet, it's what you are, um, works with duality. And the wisdom of emotions is that the emotions themselves are not the problem. It is what is our relationship to them. Are we lost in them? Are we frightened of them? But if you can make space to see the emotions as they arise and to hold them with compassion and wisdom, this is anger. Anger has some truth in it. It also has some delusion in it. And you can see it when you look clearly. And this is love. Love has some truth in it. It also can have some delusion in it. I'm sure you've noticed, right? (laughs) Only romantic love, right? Um... And so the practice becomes to become mindful of the river of emotions. Just as there's a river of sensations, there's a river of emotions. And sometimes when we begin to sit, what happens is we feel the unfinished business in the heart. You sit and try to get quiet and the person that you know, you haven't mourned because you've been running around too much and that you lost or the relationship that ended or the, the thing that was so painful... It comes and it knocks and it says, remember me. And you have the tears to grieve um, that are part of the way of meditation very, very deeply. Um, Here is Ghalib. Let me see if I can find his poem. He writes, said Master Ghalib, come on. For the raindrop, joy is entering the river Travel far enough into sorrow, tears turn into sighing. When, after heavy rains, the storm clouds disperse, is it not true they've wept themselves to the end? And sometimes in your meditation you weep for your own traumas and sorrows of your life or the suffering of the world around you, this great, you know, pain that we carry. And your meditation becomes like a shrine. I know working with young kids who come out of the inner city gangs that I've done these retreats for, they come and they sit and they say, oh, you're going to teach meditation and poetry and shit like that. Like, hey, man, who's interested, right? Pull their hats back and sit like this. Say, okay, before we start, we need to make a little altar, just a table and a candle. Now go down to the stream or the parking lot or wherever you are and find a stone for every young person you know who's died and put it on the altar. And when you do, just simply say their name. And, you know, in ten minutes, these guys are coming back with their hands full of stones, more stones than a young person should ever know, you know. And this is for Jose, and this is for Bibi, and this is for, you know, and all of a sudden, once that altar has the stones on it, we're in the room together and we can have a conversation about the incredible sorrows that these young people have to carry because, you know, something holy happens when we're willing to turn and face the tears that we have as well as the joy that we have really honorably. A story for you Many of you will know the, the very wonderful book, Black Elk Speaks, which is one of the great Native American medicine men of the last more than 100 years um, by John 
Nyhart's conversations with him, helping him write this, and he had these great visions on the Harney Peak in the Dakotas, this high mountain. And in the last chapter of this amazing book, Nyhart's there with Black Elk, and he wants to take a final hike up this mountain, Harney Peak. And here he is, the Sioux holy man, explained that when death approached, a Lakota could climb this mountain to see if the great spirit approved of their life. And rain would fall on those who had the great spirit's approval. Rain was a blessing. As a young man, Black Elk had this great shaman's vision that told him how to save his people and homeland from the settlers and soldiers. And all his years he worked to fulfill the vision of the world as a sacred hoop that contained room for all. But he felt he may have failed in this and that the sacred hoop was broken. The day of his climb, Black Elk was an old man. He dressed in red long johns, moccasins, war paint, and a feathered war headdress. Slowly and laboriously, he climbed to the summit. He was oblivious to the summer tourists who stared at him. You've got to get the scene, all these people in the summer. And Nyhart teased him that he should have picked a day with at least one rain cloud in the sky, but Black Elk rebuked him, saying the rain would have nothing to do with the weather. And at the top of the peak, not far from all the tourists, the old man lay down under a blue sky. And to his astonishment, Nyhart watched as a few small clouds immediately formed over Black Elk, and a soft rain began to fall. And Black Elk wept with relief. He felt that even though he'd not succeeded in fulfilling his vision, the Great Spirit was signaling that he had done his best. There's a kind of grace that comes when we're willing to sit and own our measure of fear and longing and the great love that's in us, which it is in every single one of us. Our Buddha nature, our true nature, wants to love and be loved. And all the impediments that come as these emotions and a healing that takes place when we allow them to come and go and be met in the space of truth, the space of awareness. The feelings in the feelings, they liberate themselves through our attention. And we become the space of the Buddha that says, ah, this too. Gee, I have a few more minutes and two more foundations. No problem. (laughs) Mind in the mind. Who is your enemy, asks the Buddha. Mind is your enemy. No one can harm you more than your own mind, untamed. It's truth, isn't it? Not the worst enemy. Who is your friend? Mind is your friend. No one can help you, not even the most loving mother or father, more than your own mind and heart, wisely trained. So what does it mean to be aware of mind in the mind? Just as there's a river of these 500 emotions always passing through, there's a river of thoughts. You sit for a moment quietly, and what happens? Does the mind get quiet? Most people find that what they experience is the inner waterfall, this huge stream of thoughts. It's like that cartoon I like to speak about from the New Yorker, the car crossing the Utah desert, this vast landscape, and the roadside sign that says, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles. (laughs) And the thing about the mind, someone said there are 67,000 thoughts a day. I think that's a little high. Maybe it's 37, but whatever. (laughs) Is that it has no pride. It will tell any kind of story and beliefs. Trivia, movies, songs, commercials, you know. (laughs) And mostly, it's rerun. It's like you, you, you pick up the remote and, you want to, and you're stuck in the middle of the night in a hotel room and it's only on one channel, a bad channel, you know, the, the, some combination of, you know, crappy jewelry mixed together with, you know, some kitchen supplies or something like that. And then the stories about your last love affair and how you're a failure and what you're going to do and so And you can't change the channel. I mean, it's crazy in there. Have you noticed? Mostly... Marcus Aurelius writes, the soul becomes dyed with the color of its thoughts. But what do we do with these stories, the stories of anxiety and fear? 
I always quote Mark Twain where he says, my life was filled with, well, my life was filled with, uh, you got to get the line straight for this, with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened, right? <laughs> so we know this. I mean, fear is always something that hasn't happened, some imagination. You know, but then there's optimism on the other side. Oh, no need for a medical checkup, just a little lump, right? You know, or the lights on on the dashboard. Oh, I'll make it another 10,000 miles. Let's not deal with that. Pessimism is equally bad, you know. Praise, blame. We get blinded by thoughts. And the thoughts have all these different characters, the judge and the tyrant and the fussy child and the overzealous bureaucrat, you know, the bureaucracy of ego in there. You've seen it. Right? And the, you know, the spiritual voice, right? And the, you know, and there's the loving voice. There's all these kinds of voices that come and all these reruns of stories. So what do you do? My teacher Nisargadot said, the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. Do you take your thoughts seriously? I mean, they're useful. You need a plan to a certain extent and figure things out. But you could do with about 90% less and do all the analysis you need. I mean, who's the master and who's the servant here? Thoughts make a good servant and not a terribly good master. So we need to listen in a different way. And in one way, there's a limited way we can train the mind and quiet it some and purify it, like taking its pulse, see its patterns, See how impermanent thoughts are. They're like clouds that come through, all this whole stream of them. You don't have to believe them all. But the other, even more important, yes, you need to see what's in your mind and see the patterns you get caught in. This is part of the liberation of mindfulness. But the other part, even deeper, the healing, is to step into that which is timeless, to rest in the eternal present of awareness, to be here and now with the mind like sky and the heart open. And you say, yeah, there are all these thoughts, and here we are. Here we are in the presence of a person we love, you know, with a glass of Chardonnay or a beautiful spring, you know, um, pear tree that's blooming, or just walking down the street toward the parking lot where your car is, um, being alive. And if you don't think that's mysterious and wonderful, you know, try the opposite. <laughs> Basically, the, you know, the astronauts who went up to the Russian space station some, some years ago, there was one trip where they got in great danger. I think they were running out of water and oxygen or something. It was really dicey whether they would be able to survive. And they finally got their capsule and got back to land in Kazakhstan or wherever their landing place was at that time. And they got out of the capsule and they got down, the first thing they did was just get down on the earth and kiss the dirt. So beautiful to come back home to this earth. And so the mind creates the abyss. These people are different. I'm this way. It should all be some other way than it is. All those stories, some of which are useful, many of which aren't. And the heart crosses it. And the heart is the big heart, the spacious heart that says, yeah, here are the stories and here are the visions and so forth. But this is not who we really are. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, puts it this way. He says, we human beings are constantly in combat at war to escape the fact of being limited. Limited by so many circumstances we can't control. It's true, isn't it? And by our bodies and fate. But instead of escaping, we continue to create suffering, waging war with good, waging war with evil, waging war with what's too small, or waging war with what's too big, waging war with what's too short or too long, right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. Why not step out of the battle? And to do this, mindfulness of the mind allows us to, with the mind, to observe the thinking mind, And no, that's not all there is to the mind. The mind also has spaciousness and love and wisdom and intuition and a deep freedom that's not bound by the stories. There is in all things an inexhaustible sweetness and purity 
writes Thomas Merton, a silence that is a fountain of action and joy. It rises up in wordless gentleness and flows out to me from the unseen roots of all creation. This is meditation. To rest in some vast silence which we are always surrounded by. And the breath breathes itself and the feelings come and go and the body releases its tension and the thoughts, the river stream comes and there's a sense of the vastness. The question is not the future of humanity, as I like to say, but the presence of eternity, of returning to that which is timeless, from which wisdom in our own life and wisdom to those around us and wisdom to the earth that we share comes so naturally. And the last of the foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of the Dharma in the Dharma. Dharma is a complicated word in Sanskrit because it has several meanings. It means truth. It means the path. So the Dharma of the Buddha is the Buddha's way. It means the elements that make up life. But in this case, it's really the truth of the way things are, the process, the, the, the very um, characteristics that make up incarnation in this world of physicality and spirit that we're born into. And when we turn from the body in the body and make our peace with the body in a wise way, the feelings in the feelings and see the river and understand that we contain it all, and the mind in the mind and see all those thoughts and rest in the vastness, then there comes the Dharma in the Dharma, an understanding and a healing of emptiness, openness, letting go. See how I can describe this to you. From Chuang Tzu, the Taoist sage, a drunken man who falls out of a cart, though he may suffer, does not die. His bones are the same as other people's, but he meets his accident in a different way. His spirit is in a condition of security. He's not conscious of riding in the cart, neither is he conscious of falling out of it. Ideas of life and death, fear and the like, cannot penetrate his breast, and so he does not suffer, even from contact with objective existence. If such security is to be gotten from wine, how much more so from resting in the Tao? Ancient, beautiful story. Every time we pay attention, we become emptier. And the more empty we become, the more healing space there is to know what's so and rest in a place of wisdom and love. And at the center of the Buddha's awakening on the night of his enlightenment, he saw the truth of suffering, that human life contains loss and suffering. Anybody not have that? Just raise your hand. You can have your $8 back. (laughs) Joy and sorrow, praise and blame, gain and loss, light and dark, hot and cold, pleasure and pain birth and death. It's woven in this way. He saw that this was so. He saw the river of life which is impermanent and that no moment can ever be repeated, that it's always new. And he began to rest in the reality of the present. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi says, when we realize the fact that everything is impermanent and find our composure in it, we find ourselves in nirvana. And so there sat the Buddha, seeing the dance of life. That you, It's not something you have to fix. You tend it and you love it, but you can't fix impermanence. And you can't fix the fact of aging or suffering. It's just part of it. You also can't fix joy and love. Those are part of it. And, and ecstasy and beauty. He saw the dance of life, and he saw how it could be lived from a small sense of self, what we call the body of fear, clinging. And he realized that that was the life of struggle and the life of sorrow and the life of confusion and of greed and and fear. And in releasing that, he saw that life was open 
and free and empty that it could be for every single being. Like a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a phantom, a rainbow, a dream. And the whole sense of identity shifted. You live in illusion in the appearance of things, says Kala Rinpoche. You live in illusion in the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And this isn't a philosophy. It's a, it's a direct, immediate, you could call it mystical, but it's a human experience that the sense of separateness falls away. And we all know it, even in our own ways, making love, walking in the mountains, listening to amazing music, getting high. You know, you've tried it a hundred ways, and you all know it's true. And for the Buddha, there was this shift of identity from the small sense of self to a space of infinite freedom. And the same for you from mindfulness. A bear paced up and down the 20-foot length of its cage when after 15 years the cage was removed, the bear continued to pace up and down the same 20-foot length as if the cage were still there. It's a true story from a zoo. We do the same thing. We get this habit of who we think we are. And there's conditions and we speak a certain language and have a culture. That's not who you are. That's conditions and culture. Who you are is vastness. And so there's this shift from the small sense of self to the space of freedom and presence and timelessness. And with this comes a kind of deep listening that knows that we don't possess anything. We rent the body like a car from Avis or something like that. You have to care for it, you know, otherwise you have to pay at the end, right? But um, you don't own it. You don't own your children. They don't want to be owned. You'll find that out. They want to be loved and tended and cared for, but they have their own sovereignty, their own life. So you see with the deep listening, like Yeshe Dunnan, that you don't own things. And instead there comes a spacious emptiness that gets filled with love. When a traveler at long last comes home from a far journey, with what gladness does their family and friends receive them? In the same way, when some When one develops the wisdom of mindfulness, it is as if you come home and are greeted with the same beauty. Zhuang Tzu again, he writes, If a person is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with their own skiff, they will push it away without shouting or without being angry. But if there's a man in the boat... They will shout at him to steer clear and shout yet again and become angry and all because there is someone in the boat. (laughs) Yet if the boat were empty, they would not be shouting and not be angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. And this is important to clarify because there are some people who have a kind of unworthiness and their boat is, it's not empty, it's actually full of unworthiness. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And so you, sisters and brothers of that kind, you've got to stand up for yourself, you know, and fill your boat with a kind of wise emptiness and not, not, uh, not, not unworthiness. He's not talking about that. He's talking about something, you know what he's talking about. He's talking about a space of freedom in the heart it's not about smallness or not owning the, the glory that you are, but letting the glory that you are shine all by itself without you know, making something special of it in combat with other. O nobly born, say the Buddhist text, remember this true nature of awareness as we sat. Rest in it. Let the thoughts and feelings, the body, all these things come and go like clouds of the sky. This mystery and live in joy, even in the midst of the cha- this changing world. There is in each of us a longing for wholeness and freedom. We search for it in all different ways. This little poem from Chief Crowfoot. He says, what is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night, It is the breath of a buffalo in wintertime. 
It is the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. It's ephemeral and precious and beautiful and mysterious. And when we begin to train ourselves and return to this space of mindfulness, which liberates us from fears and confusions and conflict and attachment, not because they're not there. You're going to meet fears and confusion, conflict and attachment. They'll show themselves. Oh, this is fear. Fear, 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 fear. Oh, God, terror, terror, okay. This is attachment. This is longing. You get to know them all, all the menagerie. But there is a way in which this liberation, the space of knowing, allows for it, and you rest in the great heart of a Buddha. As the uh, Ojibwe say, you've all heard this, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And here's Yeshe Dundon listening, you know, with this incredible art to the pulse of a person, to know these, you know, deep truths of their body. Um, your body wants to be listened to um, and attended to, and listened with compassion and wisdom, understanding. Your emotions want this. The mind wants understanding. And more than that, <clears throat> your dance in the world and all those around you, they want your listening too. And it's not like it's some grim duty or some onerous thing that you have to do. It's beautiful. It's tough sometimes because you have to open to things that you might be frightened of, but it's perfectly safe, you know, because you're human and this is what you're supposed to do. And in your humanity comes a kind of salvation in your humanity awakens your, your Buddha nature. Maybe I read you one more story and then we end, since it's springtime. This from Lewis Thomas, who's a marvelous essayist, called Great Winds. At home, 4 p.m. today, spring afternoon, says the female moth. This is good day for it, and releases a brief explosion of bombacol hormone a single molecule of which will tremble the hairs of any male within miles and send him driving upwind in a confusion of ardor and desire. Confusion of ardor and desire. But it is doubtful if he has an awareness of being caught in a spray of aerosol chemical attractant. On the contrary, he probably finds suddenly that it has become an excellent day the weather remarkably bracing, the time appropriate for a bit of exercise of the old wings, a brisk turn upwind. En route, traveling the scent gradient of Bombacol, he notes the presence of other males heading in the same direction, all in a good mood, inclined to race for the sheer sport of it. Then when he reaches his destination, it may seem to him the most extraordinary of coincidences the greatest piece of luck. Bless my soul, what have we here? (laughs) We are carried by these great winds. You know it's true. And the heart has the capacity to be present, compassionate and wise, free. And this is the invitation of mindfulness. So let's sit for a moment.
like us to end the evening with a very simple chant, one syllable, and then we'll go out into the spring night. There's a Buddhist text called the Sutra or of Complete and Perfect Wisdom in 80,000 verses that's summed up in 8,000 verses and 800 verses. And fortunately, for the sake of timing tonight, it's summed up in one syllable. It saves a lot of reading on your part. Um, and the reason this syllable is the summary of perfect wisdom is in Sanskrit it's considered the first sound and the last sound of life. But most importantly, it's the sound of letting go or opening, listening, receiving. And so it's the seed syllable, ah. And I'd like us just to sing ah for a little bit, and then we'll go out into this spring darkness. Ah. Keep it going and let go anything you want into the ah. And add harmony ah. space of mindfulness and freedom and compassion be yours in the day ahead, in the days ahead. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.